Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Carrie-Anne Yakoda on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Unbecoming British, How Revolutionary America... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Carrie-Anne Yakoda on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Unbecoming British, How Revolutionary America Became a Postcolonial Nation. You might not believe it, but the founding fathers were British, They thought of themselves as British. They were subjects of the crown. They were surrounded by objects that were made in Britain. They were British, sort of. They had taken a kind of British or English cultural package to the New World, and there, in isolation, it changed. To draw a evolutionary metaphor, this cultural package speciated. It became something different than it was because it was isolated from, in this case, the mother country. Sometimes the Americans, if we can call them that, changed the package intentionally, and sometimes they changed it accidentally. But in any case, it became different from the thing that had spawned it. And this caused a certain amount of anxiety among the Americans. They recognized that British culture was in most ways superior, but they also recognized that this put them in an odd situation because they could not partake of it, at least in the fullest sense. Combine that with the fact that they were creating a new nation, you can see that they were quite anxious about who they were. They wanted to find virtue in the rudeness, if I can put it that way, of the new world, but they strained to do so. In this book, book, Carrie-Anne shows how they dealt with their anxiety about who they were, about how they were British but also American, about how they felt about themselves and about their position in the world. One of the great things about the book is that it uses some very unusual sources. The one that I really liked was porcelain. It turns out that there was some fascinating porcelain made in the Revolutionary Era. I did not know this, but uh, Carrie-Anne does a really wonderful job of reading it. I really enjoyed talking to Carrie-Anne today, and I think you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Carrie-Anne. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm really, really great, and it's wonderful to be here talking with you. Well, how how very nice of you to say. Today we're talking with Carrie-Anne Yakota about her new book, Unbecoming British, How Revolutionary America Became a Postcolonial Nation. I can tell you that I never thought of America as a (laughs) postcolonial nation. I was telling Carrie-Anne in the pre-interview that uh, I know really quite uh, little about uh, colonial America. And, you know, I was even surprised to learn that the founding fathers, so to say, thought they were British. I, you know, so that my ignorance runs very uh, deep, I think, in this <laughs> subject. I, over the course of the hour, though, I'm sure that I will learn a lot. So, Carrie Ann, why don't you uh, do us the favor at the beginning of the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I started my um, professional career actually as a 20th century ethnic studies uh, scholar. And I was particularly interested in the history of inter-ethnic relations between African Americans and Asian Americans. Um, and so I, I started off in a very different place. And my career took an unusual turn uh, when I realized that I wanted to take a second degree in colonial and early American history. So like you... I started off um, not knowing as much about colonial history as I wanted to, and in the end, I turned out to be a revolutionary historian. <laughs> yeah, that is what, <laughs> so yeah. you never know. <laughs> no, you, do, you never know where it's going to lead you. That's true. It's, uh, boy, could I tell you stories about how? <laughs> yeah, um, contingency. We talk a lot about contingency in history, That's and right. boy, there is a lot of it. So, um, tell right. us, tell us how you came to, to write *Unbecoming British*. Well, going back to my um, first degree in ethnic studies, I was writing it during the 1992 
uh, riots, mm. also known as the L.A. uprisings or rebellions. And I was interested in thinking about uh, racial hierarchies and inequalities. And in that project, I wanted to know about it. I wanted to see if there was a time when Asian Americans who in the 20th century has be- have become known as model minorities really were in similar socioeconomic uh, straits as African Americans, and I wanted to know whether they uh, formed interethnic ties. Um, and in researching that question, I wanted to know more about the history of racial inequality in America, and that's why I thought it was um, important for me to really go into the 18th century. So what I did was I started doing nothing but read 18th century primary sources. (laughs) And this, as a 20th century historian, was a very different experience. You had to learn uh, paleography, you had to know about the different languages or use of language, and as I just immersed myself in the primary documents, um, I started thinking about how these founding generate this founding generation started. They, they reminded me of some group, other group, and I didn't know what or who. And I go running every morning, and that's when I really think about my writing and I get my best ideas when I'm running. And I said, you know, they remind me of ethnic minorities from later periods because, as W. E. B. Du Bois very eloquently talked about double consciousness, people of color often see themselves both through the eyes of the dominant majority and also they understand themselves as equals. So there's always a sense of seeing yourself through the eyes of another. And it struck me that the founding fathers and the founding generation in general um, were doing the same thing. They always were aware of how the British thought of them and it was not a pretty picture. (laughs) <laughs> unfortunately. It's funny because I, I lived in yep. Boston for a long time. And oh, yeah. <clears throat> one of the things that what you just said reminds me of is the way Bostonians think about themselves, and that is not New Yorkers. So <laughs> they always think of themselves like, what, what are the New Yorkers thinking about us? Because we're not exactly. New York. So, yeah. I suppose the same is true of L.A. and San Francisco. No, not so much, really. Well, you know, that's a, that's a subject for a whole different hour. We could talk for an hour about the NoCal-SoCal divide, yeah. but I will stop okay. uh, myself from doing so. Um, but for these founding fathers, that was a revelation for me, that they were actually very, very aware of how the rest of the world was looking down their noses at them. I mean, when I say the rest of the world, I should clarify, they were interested in how Europeans saw them. Mm -hmm. And they were interested in being um, recognized as equals to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And this informed so much of early American culture that I thought, you know, this is something that has not been explored um, by anyone else. And that's where Unbecoming British really uh, began for me. Mm -hmm. Did you find post-colonial theory, which I have read absolutely none of, of any (laughs) use in your work? It did, you know, and it, the, my reading in post-colonial theory um, was part of my training as an ethnic studies scholar. And I was fascinated by the work of post-colonial theorists who talk about how cultural inequality really lingers on after political independence is won. And that, for me, I mean, they have said many other things and made many very, very insightful arguments. But for me, that aspect of postcolonial theory really was helpful in thinking about America in a different, uh, from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So for members of the colonial settler societies like America, re- they were rebelling against the mother country and what they were doing was they had to repudiate membership in a club into which American leaders were fighting so hard to gain admission into. So for years during the colonial era, Americans were trying to gain, um, like I say, entree into um, high culture, high society in England, especially. And now they were repudiating membership. And the, the, it was not a clear-cut um, thing. They didn't want to to break all ties. They wanted to be politically equal. They wanted to fight for the rights um, as Englishmen. You've probably heard that before, mm-hmm. that they're trying to fight for equality um, as uh, English gentlemen. And that's the part that we often forget, yeah, I mean, I, I lived in Ireland for a while. I know the Irish will tell you that they did this for a, a, quite a long time until they gave up entirely. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. But still, it's kind of a it's kind of a rite of passage in the life of every. Uh, it used to be of every uh, uh, um, 
male resident of Ireland to go live in London for a while. Oh, absolutely. And then you come back. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that for me, I also um, spent a lot of time in Ireland because I was attracted to the similarities. Um, All of these, uh, what I call peripheries of empire, uh, sorry, excuse me, Scotland and Ireland and Mm -hmm. America, their elites um, are similar in many important ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, yep, sorry, go on. I was going to say, so why don't we launch off into a discussion of the book? And the first thing I want to ask you about is, the sources that you use, because one of the revelatory and I think um, really kind of path-breaking things about the book is the sources you use, uh, which are many and varied, and, and many of them are non-textual. Historians love text. Yes. There's tons of stuff in here that is not text. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, wonderful question. I appreciate you bringing that up. I appreciate that you noticed that. Um, I One of the things that really um, gets me excited as a historian is looking for alternative uh, sources. And for me, this... Adhere, or the, the paying attention to objects and reading them as we read written texts is something that I teach all of my students. We're very good at, as historians, we're good at training um, grad students and undergrads at being um, very savvy about looking at texts in a complicated manner, but we don't teach them how to read an object or read an image. And that's what I do in the book. Um, For me, looking at objects as primary sources opened up an entirely different world. Um, It, it, for me, the people like Washington and Jefferson, they never wrote in their political texts that they missed the king. (laughs) However, when they were trying to create their material world, they would definitely um, say things to, for instance, merchants like, you know, I'm out and I'm paraphrasing here uh, for the sake of brevity. But they would say things like, you know, I'm toiling out here in the peripheries. It's uncivilized. We can't mm-hmm. get a decent, uh, decent cup of tea or a decent uh, cut of cloth. It, everything here is so... Um, rough, and I want to buy your imported. I want to import your goods because I need to have these things. So this longing for their colonial past, this longing for European material culture, was so much more pronounced uh, than when you're talking about political differentiation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, why don't we uh, begin talking about the book directly? You, you mm-hmm. begin it with a discussion of a place that I bet a lot of the listeners <laughs> to this. Um, podcast have uh, seen, and that is Monticello, Jefferson's Monticello. Uh, Why do you begin there, and what do you find there? How do you read the artifacts there, which are many and strange, I have to say? They are. They are. I hope your readers will um, take a look at the book and see. um, take my tour of Monticello. There's been many (laughs) tours of Monticello, but I chose um, very consciously to open the book with Monticello because, for me, it serves as a metaphor for the book's argument, but for America at this moment. Um, It's for America itself in this moment. So Monticello is a mix of wild um, objects of nature, of North American nature, of New World nature. Um, And it's a mix of that and European Old World refinement. Um, And the one thing that I, I think readers or listeners should know is that Native American artifacts uh, were included in what Jefferson and other people of his educational and social uh, stature thought of as nature. So these humans, this human culture was seen as as the same or as being analogous to, say, um, hides and uh, fossils. So he would put them together. And Jefferson really thought of Monticello as a museum, um, so that's why I think it's it's very legitimate to look at this, like I said, as a metaphor for American society, because he was consciously trying to create um, a a place where visitors can see what America represents. Mm-hmm. So he has that these um, artifacts of nature very consciously mixed in with imported goods. Um, he has busts of his favorite European thinkers. He has. Um, imported portraits, imported um, musical instruments that his family would play. Um, And I I just think it's an interesting mix. And that's how he saw America as something that would celebrate um, 
wild, the wild, celebrate nature. At the same time, he wanted to prove that white Americans, at least, were educated. They were refined individuals that knew a lot about mm-hmm. European culture. And you see that in the built environment in Monticello. Mm-hmm. I also talk about how these objects embody this inequality that I'm so interested in, racial inequality. And for that, I, I will use um, the great clock. So one of the most prominent um, objects in Monticello is this great clock. Um, and Jefferson took years to assemble this from imported parts. And I like that he even imported a part. He has a Chinese gong, so he's even going <laughs> to China for this um, wonderful object. Uh, Object. And um, so if you can imagine the clock having two faces, one um, which people from the outside of the building can see um, had just an hour hand because the, the slaves and Jefferson, I should say, preferred the term servants. The servants, to his mind, didn't have to know the exact time. They just needed a rough estimation of when to come in from the fields and the gong would sound. So that was for them. But inside you had a very precise rendering of of, of the of time moving, so you had a, an hour and a minute hand, uh, a minute hand and a second hand, um, and so the differentiation as you walk through the threshold of Monticello, you you go from the wilds of nature, and, and remember Charlottesville, um, he, he's on top of a mountain. Mm-hmm. Monticello is the Italian word for little mountain, and it literally is. Um, in it's it's a very isolated spot, especially mm-hmm. at this moment in time. And you walk through the threshold, and you're treated to um, this wealth of European um, finery. Mm-hmm. And and it's all wrapped up in this neoclassical. I don't know if neoclassical is right. Uh, package because the Monticello itself, that is the building, uh, the main house is 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 not what is not. I wouldn't call it vernacular American architecture. I would call it what a, a, a guy who thought he was British thought um, a, a classical building should look like. Yeah, you, there's so many. You're absolutely right, Marshall. What a great uh, point you make. Um, it's there's so many layers of imitation and. Um, I guess, copying going on here. So Jefferson really used the Palladian style of architecture. Um, And what I think is interesting is that it had just gone out of fashion, I say just, 10 years ago in, in Europe. So I talk in the book um, and throughout the book about this lag time of um, Americans jumping on the the European bandwagon after it has become a bit passe Mm -hmm. um, in the centers of of learning and culture in Europe. And European visitors would note this. And to me, that is the post-colonial condition. It's being on a treadmill where you're always running, trying to catch up, but you're never going anywhere. You're always behind. That is, if you are trying to emulate another culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, the other thing is that even though Jefferson himself, um, he, he and many of the founding fathers had not at the time been visited uh, Greece or Rome, they had a lot of these, as you say, um, classical reference as well mm-hmm. in, their, in their built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting, and the cover of my book um, is a bit curious, it's taken from a pattern book. So, Americans would import these books. Um, um, it would have, for instance, um, these books would have different friezes, different doors, different ways to decorate a, ch- a chair or a table. And American craftsmen would be able to emulate these styles. However, um, if anybody out there is, for instance, an aspiring artist, if you're looking at a flat uh, rendering a, of a three-dimensional object, sometimes there were problems with perspective. Things American artists tend to have things that were flat, or if there was a bit of a smudge or a typo, or you couldn't see around the object, the craftsman wouldn't be able to uh, replicate these objects perfectly. And so there are all kinds of these moments where you see Americans trying, for instance, in, in Mount Vernon, There were I also talk about um, President Washington's home. There's these places where things don't make sense. They're not perfect copies of um, their British models. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. They aren't, they aren't perfect colleagues. They're, they're changing because the Americans can only imperfectly copy them. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> that's right. It's a little bit, well, I was going to say it's a little bit like the Midwest and the lag time from New York. <laughs> you get everything like a decade later. So <laughs> skateboards are big now. 
<laughs> That's L.A. from L.A., yeah. So anyway, you talk a lot, a lot about – let's move to the artifacts now. And as I say, it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book, uh, maps. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. maps? Well, I open the book um, – so I start with Monticello. And the first chapter of the book really talks about um, – I ask the question, where is America? And I wanted to see what Americans – what kinds of um, maps or geographical um, documents Americans are looking at. So if they're importing all of their refined goods from um, British uh, – especially I say European, but especially British centers of learning, um, they saw themselves or their own home – country, their own own homeland, as being on the margins of a British transatlantic world. So I thought it was fascinating that um, Americans were looking at these maps and seeing um, places where it would just say, like, unknown, or you just see a bunch of trees, and that's where your own village would be, for instance. (laughs) Um, And there are lag times where you're getting um, maps that are several generations um, outdated or old. Um, I also think it's interesting that these American colonials um, were participants in collecting the primary, the the observations, they were, uh, a lot of them were surveyors. And I make the point that many of our founding fathers got their start, Washington specifically um, comes to mind, they got their start as surveyors for the British Empire. And I think that it's no um, accident that Washington can look at a piece of land and think about its future uses. Um, and it's easy to translate that knowledge from being a British subject to a new American nation, right? So when he looks out at the land, he's already thinking about future development. Mm -hmm. So I talk about how Americans are producing the uh, raw material, the raw data, which they send to England, which then gets, um, I use the, I'm borrowing the metaphor, the raw for the cooked. It's one of the Mm -hmm. enduring themes in the book that Americans are always producing raw data. It gets sent back to the British uh, centers of learning to be cooked into maps. And then it gets sent back to the Americans at a cost. And so Americans have to buy back their own knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's quite interesting as well. And I trace... Um, the development of American map making. And I um, think one of the first things Americans are trying to do is really place their own nation at the center of um, the world as opposed to on these margins. Mm-hmm. Put themselves on the map. Put the, literally. Strain the metaphor. Put themselves yeah. on the map. Yeah, put themselves exactly. on the map. Yeah, well, that's exactly. exactly right. So uh, let's move on from maps to the, to the part of the book that I, I really found most fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. And this okay. is about porcelain and stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, the Soviets, when they came into power, uh, got very excited about making um, dishware for people, and they thought of dishware as an instrument of propaganda. So you find these really quite incredible uh, Soviet dishes and pots oh, really? and other things, yes, uh, th- that are done oh, really beautifully. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're quite amazing. I have some of them. Uh, they're produced usually in the um, – I want to say the 30s and 40s, uh, they were mass-produced and kind of given away. Um, the Soviets weren't very good at pricing. And they, they thought that people would, you know, red stars. And then, of course, when uh, later in the, in the 50s and 60s, when the Soviets got into the, the space race, they, they, Yuri Gagarin was on everything. And, uh, yeah, you could actually eat your abortion at the bottom of the <laughs> bowl would be Yuri Gagarin or something like that, or, yeah, the, the worker and the peasant or the hammer and sickle or something like that. So this is very meaningful, this stuff. Uh, and we don't do that here in the United States very much, but we did. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. We absolutely did. Um, So then I move on from maps to the trade-in objects. And as you write, I agree with you, one of my favorite objects to study is porcelain. And I'll also say one thing about sources, um, and this is what um, a material culture scholar can tell you. Um, We use porcelain a lot because, and this is a great question for my students, I say, well, so why is that? It's because it's enduring. They really last. So when you have archaeological digs, Um, porcelain is what you find often. So we can do a lot with dating porcelain and seeing the change in in, um, how people are consuming um, these objects. But um, for for this book, what I talk about is um, this wonderful, and I wish I can show your readers pictures of this, Um, Americans after the revolution went to England to buy their patriotic goods. And um, it's exactly what you say. I I talk about how 
and we have to remember this, um, political revolution coincided with a commercial revolution, the um, enlargement of trade, um, and also a scientific slash technological revolution. So these things are all dovetailing, and Mm -hmm. so you see them in the sources. So for instance, um, transferware was a new technology at the time that the British had um, invented. Uh, Very famously, uh, Josiah Wedgwood was one of the the first um, people to mass market, mass, uh, he was great at advertising. He understood uh, the benefits, the commercial benefits of having new patterns of China every season so that people would have to buy more in order to keep up with fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, di- dishware, I was going to say, dishware launched the Industrial Revolution. Most Absolutely. people don't know that, but it did. Absolutely. Everybody Absolutely. wanted dishware, yeah. And uh, if you, transferware is um, really great because in, before transferware was um, invented, you had to hand paint or hand decorate every piece of porcelain. And with transferware printing, what it's, it's part of the printing process, and you can like slap an image on a piece of um, porcelain. And so you can mass produce decorated uh, ceramic ware. And so what they did was they were casting far and wide for any kind of image that would sell. And you have a lot of um, newspapers or periodicals going back and forth across the transatlantic world. And so if you can grab one of those paintings or or etchings, you can put it on a a jug or a plate. And so they would get images from the revolution and um, put it on porcelain ware and sell it back to Americans. And my favorite is a jug that has George Washington with his boot on the head of the of the vanquished lion, which represents England, <laughs> sold and produced and then sold by an, an English potter. And mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating. So Americans may have uh, won the war, but they were losing the commercial battle um, mm-hmm. because their money was going to the English. And they were just so proud that um, of their of their victory that they wanted to show this in their material lives and um, the best things could be had from Britain and mm-hmm. I have again in my book um, a side-by-side comparison Americans also made their own dishes um, mostly it was it was redware porcelain pottery um, a farmer for instance during the um, times where they didn't have to work in the fields in the winter they would make um, their own uh, dishware very utilitarian utilitarian objects uh, from local clay. Um, And if you compare that with what you can buy from England, um, you you could see that one is much more um, rustic. Let's just, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. It was more rustic than the polished, refined um, transferware pottery. And so you have this question in America, how do you best express your patriotism? Do you do that by buying American? And obviously, um, it, at certain points in America's history during the revolutionary crisis, um, you have boycotts of things, most famously of tea. Um, or, I mean, another th- way to think about it, another way Americans thought about it is actually the best way to show your patriotism is to put the best your best foot forward. And that would be to buy imported goods, to show the rest of the world that we are not unrefined upstarts, not, you know, colonial rebels, but rather we are gentle men and gentle women that are worthy of self-rule and worthy of um, an equal seat at the table of international relations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm reminded of a sign that I saw in a Walmart or something, I guess quite a while ago. It was a, for uh, American flags, and it said they were made in America. <laughs> The implication being that a lot of American flags that you buy are not made in America. That's right. I bet they're That's made in right. China or Taiwan or I don't know where. You would be surprised. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think that when you go down that road of um, ascribing political meaning to objects, it's a very slippery slope. And Americans mm-hmm. found the same thing to be true in this post-revolutionary period. Um, another favorite example I have of this is the debate um, about what President Washington should wear um, during his inaugural um, ceremony. And so there was an actual debate in Congress about this. And so when people tell me that material culture or objects or 
fashion, um, if they're just superfluous or, or it has no political meaning, I would say no, I argue quite the opposite. And I think about the politics of culture in this book. Mm -hmm. So what kind of message does the president, the first president of the United States want to give to the rest of the world? Do we have him wear homespun um, and uh, look very um, rustic or do we buy a suit from Savile Row and make it um, adhere to the latest fashions in Europe? And there really was a split. There's not one answer. And um, I'm kind of curious what you would what you would say, Marshall. I buy all my suits uh, uh, from <laughs> Marshalls uh, off the rack. So I, you know. But where are they made? Are they American? Oh made? no, I'm sure. No, absolutely no, no. And not, if you no, ever no. run for office, maybe that's something you have to think about. Believe right? me, believe me. I, if I couldn't run for office. It would take the <laughs> press about thirty seconds to find so much dirt on me that I, I'd be lucky to be dog catcher. Uh, I'd probably be arrested. You know, I have a friend who says the truth will set you free, and I always say uh, the truth would put me in jail. So I'm not, not going to go there with that. Um, now these, well, in, yeah, sorry. I was going to just add the end of the story is in the, they decided to compromise, as um, happens often in politics. Um, and they purchased this suit from a maker named Daniel Hinsdale of Connecticut, who um, made American cloth, but in the European manner. And it was almost, it was said to be almost as good. As mm -hmm. British cloth. Mm -hmm. I see. Now, now the, the the colonies themselves were producing things like tobacco, right, and, and cotton, and and did, did that impact what the Americans thought about themselves? Well, I mean, I think that what's interesting, again, going back to this raw for the cooked, they would produce um, raw materials and then have it refined in the mother country and then sold back to them. Um, but, for instance, I think some people will be aware of the fact that American textile manufacturing began um, after, or really began in earnest after the revolution. But there was a hierarchy of goods in that American cloth was known as slave cloth. Mm -hmm. So th this was very rough cloth that would be used for um, slaves and servants, um, and they their labor would produce the goods that would be sold to Europe um, to buy more refined types of cloth that their masters would wear. Mm -hmm. So um, another thing that I thought was interesting as I was doing my research, I was looking at Washington's um, household expenses, and President Washington had both domestic and um, imported goods in in Mount at Mount Vernon. Um, but the domestic goods tended to be for uh, servants or slaves. They tended to be things that were consumable. Um, apples he would trade, uh, and the refined goods, though, were always coming from imported sources from European sources. And I think that, again, goes back to this mix that I, I talk about. And I'm not um, place, uh, putting judgment on um, the founders for doing this. I don't think it made them less American, in fact. I think that my book is about revealing the complexity of early American identity. Mm -hmm. So um, I am not interested, like I said, in heroicizing or demonizing founders. I'm interested in understanding how... Um, their enduring relations with um, the mother country influenced the way they are constructing this new nation. Mm -hmm. Was there anything produced in America, any finished good that was sold in Europe? Anything? Um, you know, anything, I would say, yes, I'm sure there were, but not um, anything that I thought was of significant. I mean, you know, you might see – it's, it's usually – things that are exotic and exciting. And I find um, that fascinating. I use the notion of a triangulated relationship um, a lot in the book. So what I'm interested in in every chapter is looking at um, white Americans, um, at Europeans, and people of color in uh, North America and their relationship and how their each of their relationships inform the other. Um, and what I find very interesting, Americans, white Americans, settlers, um, if you're using the uh, rubric of post-colonial um, studies. So these settlers were in this very, very uncomfortable liminal space in between the two poles. Um, and really what they found is when they were trying to um, 
they were trying to get entree into European debates, whether they're intellectual debates or commercial exchanges, the thing that Europeans were most interested in was gaining access to what I say products of nature. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a chapter on natural history and how, again, just like these um, early surveyors, American um, botanists or aspiring botanists or naturalists were um, asked to climb trees and raid nests for birds' eggs. They were asked to uproot plants and send them back um, to the mother country to be classified using the Linnaean system. Mm -hmm. And so, and also they were asked to measure the bones of slaves. There were all kinds of things going on. This is pre-Darwin, but they were trying to figure out, um, and this is Europeans, Enlightenment thinkers, were trying to um, figure out the varieties of mankind. Mm -hmm. So they would say there was a story that I have in the book of the president of Princeton going to one of his black servants and with a tape measure and trying to um, measure their arm bone because there were these these were things that um, people in the Royal Society would have been very interested in knowing. Mm -hmm. So again, Americans serve as middlemen trying to um, package natural products for British consumption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Let me, let me ask this. So many, let's say many of the inhabitants of, uh, of, of the New World at this time were, of course, the descendants of Englishmen or Englishmen themselves, but many of them weren't. Uh, That's I'm right. French, French folks and, uh, uh, you know, there were Germans, Germans, I think, Germans, a lot of Germans. And do, do, what about these folks? Colonies. Um, I think that they play a very, very um, important role in the development of American society. And in fact, if I'm talking about, so the book is called Unbecoming British, I'm arguing that, um, I, and I'm, I'm arguing that people have to unbecome what they were in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am mostly interested in this colonial mother country relationship. So while I'm not saying that these other groups were not important, um, I was particularly interested in this, um, the English or British American um, relationship. That said, Americans often looked to these other groups to um, be a representation of how Americans were different. And I think that eventually we begin to embrace difference um, Mm -hmm. in a much more confident manner. But this is not until several generations um, later where you see, for instance, the heroicization of the Native American figure um, after Native Americans are no longer a so-called real threat to white American settlers. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, for those of you who are graduate students out there, um, we've just mentioned several dissertation topics for you. <laughs> I hope yeah, so. The Germans and their attempt to identify themselves as Americans. Um, so let, let's move on a little bit. I, I think every American has had – well, every American who's been abroad has had the experience of going abroad and uh, meeting other Americans and thinking, gosh, that person's a lot like me. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Like, we think of ourselves as very different one from the other, and then you go abroad, and you're like, Jesus, we're just all the same. So you have this interesting <laughs> chapter about uh, British and American encounters in uh, China. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, the, the chapter that you're referring to talks about America's first forays into the Pacific world and into Asia. And I should go back and explain that um, one of the problems that Americans had with being a colonial society is they had to adhere to the mercantile laws, which forbade them to um, trade with anyone but the mother country or uh, forbade them to trade without the permission of the mother country with anyone else. So um, one of the first things Americans do when they win the revolution and when they win their independence is they outfit a ship to go to China. And I found this so fascinating because it's something we don't often talk about this first uh, voyage. Um, The ship was called the Empress of China. Interestingly, it was used in the revolution. Um, And so you have all of these ships and sailors who have nothing to do now that the (laughs) war is over. Hey, so let's go over there. And so on the same day, 
that the Empress of China goes um, leaves America to go to Canton. Um, you have another ship that goes um, is launched, um, and it's carrying the ratified version of the peace treaty to England. So I find that fascinating, and it was on Washington's birthday. So it was a very auspicious day. Crowds brave the um, cold to go and watch the ship, and there's all kinds of fanfare. And I I just juxtapose that with the silence that they are met with in Canton. Mm-hmm. And um, the British uh, are the number one uh, trading foreign traders in Canton at the time, but even they are not, are seen, are, I guess, I want to say treated with disdain by the Chinese emperor um, and by the Chinese who really feel like they don't need the foreigners, the foreigners need them because the Chinese at the time are producing the world's nicest, finest, most refined um, products. So even Europeans need to go to China to get porcelain. So all this Wedgwood business that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, it's really in imitation of Chinese porcelain. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back to the story, Americans enter into Canton and the Chinese say, you know, are you hearkening the arrival of the British ship? Because the British East India Company's <laughs> ships are so much bigger American ships that it, it, they, they don't even imagine that these people are, are coming to trade on their own. They think they're going to tell them, hurry, the British are coming, so, you know, get ready. And they say, no, we just fought a war. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, we just fought a war. And for Americans, you know, there couldn't be anything more different from a British and American. But to the Chinese, they all look the same. And the Chinese said, well, you speak the same language. Your names are the same. Your tastes are the same. So you even smell the same, which was not seen as a compliment. Um, so what is the difference? And I think that really flummoxed the Americans and the British alike. Uh, and for me to study American national identity, I think you have to go to these sites that are outside of the American nation to really get at the heart of this, right? So what is the difference between an American and a British person um, a month or two or three or even uh a generation after this uh, war has been fought. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese are asking some really important questions. And in fact, the Americans are not listed as a separate people for a long time in Ouch. the Chinese records. <laughs> that hurts. It really hurts. It does. It yeah. does. So, I mean, but really, I think it, it, as Americans, we, when you look at how other people um, view you, that's when you, you get a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. That's what oh. I always say, you know, that you can't know yourself until you go abroad. That's what I tell all my students. You've got to go abroad and you'll figure out who you are. I say the same thing, absolutely. And, you know, the British and the Americans do end up working together um, when they're in Canton. But I also think for a post-colonial people, it's instructive for Americans who had grown up really admiring the British, if not in a resentful fashion, but really thinking of them as, the, at the, as being at the top of the hierarchy, to see them literally kowtowing um, mm-hmm. to the Chinese um, was instructive, to see the British in a position of weakness. So I'm always interested in looking at these hierarchies from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Instructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instructive. That that that. Yeah, that's that's. I put that in air quotes. Instructive. Yeah. The um, <laughs> can't do air quotes in. in yeah, you can't really. Radio. No, they don't. They don't work on on the radio really or in podcasts. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, let's turn back to um, the uh, topic of uh, naturalism and um, uh, the study of nature and uh, and and patronage ties. You have a chapter about that. So, um, again, I I wanted in this book to give a very broad picture of post-revolutionary slash post-colonial American society. And if I only talked about um, merchants or I only talked about missionaries, then people might say, well, this post-colonial inferiority that you see only applies to this particular group. But I wanted to say, no, this is a phenomenon that goes across many different fields. Mm -hmm. And for the naturalists and for thinkers um, or scholars, medical doctors is another, uh, the subject of another one of my chapters, they really are dependent on 
patronage from the mother country. And again, that's why England figures more prominently or Britain figures more prominently um, than the other European nations in this study because it's about Americans working even harder after revolution, after the revolution, to maintain ties to their um, patrons in England. Um, we have to remember that at this time, um, Americans were going abroad for their education, painters, anyone that wanted to make it big, again, using the air quotes, had to go over there to England or to Europe to get a foreign education in order to be respected back at home. But when they did come back home, they can walk into the, the best jobs in the country. Mm-hmm. And so I um, trace a lot of the voyages and journeys of several individuals who work that system. I, I love um, one guy in particular, Benjamin Smith Barton. He knew how to work the colonial system. Him. He didn't. He ended up ended up, and I'll ha- I'll wait for the readers to read the book. But he had some pretty shady dealings, and he ended up not getting a degree um, at the University of Edinburgh, where he had gone to study um, medicine. And um, he ended up walking into a professorship at Penn. Mm-hmm. And just by going over there, he had refined himself. So um, if, I, if, you, if you will um, humor me and let me use that metaphor one more time, he was raw and then he went to England. And just by virtue of going over there, going to he actually went to Scotland and England. By, virtual, by virtue of going over there, you, he had cooked himself or refined himself. <laughs> and then he um, was able to have a very successful career here in America. It's funny because that sort of, if I can call it Anglophilia, I don't know mm-hmm. if I can or not, uh, it persists for a very long time and it still exists in academia, doesn't it? I mean, people, Absolutely. yeah, young people from prestigious colleges go over to England, to Oxford, to Cambridge, get cooked. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you tell that to your students next time they go over there. You're going to go get cooked. I tell um, them I tell them to go to the University of Illinois <laughs> to get cooked. I, yeah, so. yeah. You know, and it's, it really works in these concentric circles. And your comment reminds me of that. Um, for instance, this famous... Uh, artist Benjamin West, you know, he's Pennsylvanian and he starts off not in Philadelphia, but in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. And they people recognized that he had artistic talent. And so they send him to they pull their money together and they send him to Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. where he again distinguishes himself as a man of talent. Um, But then again, he has to get patronage to go over to England and he ends up being the king's painter. Um, and what I find fascinating, at Yale we have two um, museums. One is in a, the Museum of, of British History and one is the American Art Gallery. And we have a street that goes through it and I say that's the Atlantic. And um, <laughs> Benjamin West, um, so the, these two museums are right across the street from one, one another. And Benjamin West appears in both places. And he appears in American um, museums in general. They, they label him as an American artist because he was born in America. And in England or in British art museums, he's British because it will say active in America or mm-hmm. active in England. So, I mean, how does that work? And he continues to welcome aspiring American artists. So even though he's the king's painter, he still um, identified himself as an American Hmm. and he helped other people who subsequently come back to America. Unlike him, he stayed, but they go back and they become the um, leaders of the American world of art Hmm. in this very early period. Hmm. That's very interesting. You've um, just made me realize (laughs) something about Iowa. We don't, here at the University of Iowa, we don't have a history museum. We have a natural history museum. Oh, see, see, see yeah, we no, can, you're right. Yeah, there you go. Places. Yeah, you can go look at like you know buffalo and stuff, but That's there's right. no. We yeah, we don't have any history. We're just buffalo. Well, yeah, Monticello. So Jefferson would appreciate that. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, you can go see a giant sloth. We're famous for giant sloths. It's really cool, actually. The giant. I take my kids there all the time. Um, so, uh, what is the American quest for racial refinement? Well. Um, I talk in that final chapter, so we're going moving through chapters, and mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. You, you said earlier um, that I was interested in objects. I'm trying to, and I don't say this explicitly in the book, but I'm subtly, subtly, or at least I hope it's subtly, trying to push readers to expand their definition of objects. So at the beginning, we're talking about actual things that get traded and refined. And I would say that something like a book is uh, occupies or a naturalist 
uh, a book of nature, um, occupies this uh, middle ground because it's an object that has a value and a price. It has weight and heft, but it also contains knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm moving um, towards thinking about knowledge uh, being packaged or turned into an object, right? And in the end, the last chapter, I'm thinking about race or racial identity as being a commodity. And it struck me when I was in the archives, I was going through hundreds of letters of correspondence, or I was going through correspondence of these naturalists and scientists and doctors. And as they wrote to their patrons that we talked about earlier, they were trying to very desperately trying to um, stay connected to European centers of science and learning. And they would do so in these correspond these letters. Mm -hmm. And um, when you see Europeans write, European man is um, superior in all things to other races. You'd see Americans cross that off or change that in their own responses and say, yes, I agree, the white man mm -hmm. is um, superior. And so what I think is interesting is that Americans um, value whiteness much more than Europeans do because they are living in a society that is much more racially mixed um, than the Europeans are. For Europeans, it's taken, and of course there are many different um, exceptions that you could find, but in general, um, in Europe, whiteness does not, is not the kind of marker it is. It doesn't change, it doesn't, um, is not the, I want to say the definition between being, for instance, free and enslaved, that it is here in America. And um, I make the final argument that whiteness is the one refined object, and this is their definition of refinement, not mine, but it's the refined objects that, that Americans do not have to continue to import from Europe. They imported their bodies when the first immigrants or their ancestors came over, and once they are here, it is something that is homegrown. So whiteness becomes an object of refinement that does not have to be purchased from abroad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. It's a good point. Let me. Uh, we're going to move toward the end of the book because we're about out of time. But I want you to uh, connect two dots, if you can. Uh, again, I know sure. very little about early American history. <laughs> uh, I have sort of a high schooler's knowledge of it. Uh, but I want you to connect the dot, which is uh, the Puritan vision of the New World as something that is not corrupt, and Europe mm -hmm. being very corrupt, mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, and then this, this view uh, that, that you uh, see um, described in the book uh, of, of Americans looking upon uh, Europe as a very refined place, a very good place. How, how did we get from, from there to here? Well, um, it's a very good question. It's a very broad question. So I would say take you have my 30 seconds. And no, yeah. spend, you know, <laughs> but what I would say is you have both strands in American history. The Puritans came over here because they wanted to uh, create a separate society, a city on a hill, to stay away from European corruption. But the, I guess the ironic twist is that the American Revolution takes place at a moment in American history when Americans are most similar to the British. Mm -hmm. So you have increasing the increasing Anglicization of the colonies, as Americans become more developed, they, they are more able to emulate British society. And so it's at that moment when they look the most similar to Europe, then they split. And I think that, again, is not uh, a mistake. But you continue to see, and you'll see it reemerging in the 19th century after, after this very uncomfortable post-colonial, post-revolutionary moment that I talk about, you see the reemergence of the idea of celebrating American nature, mm -hmm. of getting away from European uh, forms of literature and painting and saying, let's celebrate what makes us different because we are this uncorrupt, pristine society. We can remake ourselves anew. And they were afraid of um, overdevelopment. They were afraid of the problems that you see in London of poor peoples uh, on the street, of peasants uprising. You know, they wanted, Jefferson most famously wanted to avoid those things. So again, you see both, you can trace the history of both strands of thinking in American society. But at, at this point um, that I talk about, again, Americans are 
really trying to um, catch up to British society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought us to that point. Uh, something I think that also a high schooler might know, a high school student might know, is uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's speech, famous speech, mm-hmm. The American Scholar. What is that? What, did he, what, did he, what was he talking about? Well, in that famous essay that I do hope um, students still read, he's talking about American, I guess for me, that's Americans' intellectual declaration of independence, right? And I end with a discussion of Emerson because what strikes me um, uh, most profoundly is that he's still thinking about England. He's still thinking about um I guess, America's enduring relationship to British society. And um, so what I argue is that we are still toiling in the shadow of um, this society. But also in Emerson's time, um, while he's talking about how Americans are going to break free, he's also saying this is part of our legacy and we should celebrate America's connection to England. We should be the people that carry the mantle of the brilliance of English society. And so perhaps we wouldn't have to unbecome British in order to become American. And that's what I, I love. I love that melding of our past with our future. Mm-hmm. He didn't really get away. Emerson really didn't get away from um, Europe, I think, in that uh, little talk, because I, I think some people would say that transcendentalism, whatever it is, is kind of romanticism under a different name. That's right. I mean, that's I, right. <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm sure that people will write me and say that's absolutely wrong. Oh. But, <laughs> well, yeah. then they should direct their letters to you, not to me. <laughs> I've made a career out of being wrong and having people correct me because people love to correct people, and I'm willing to take it. You know, so that's fine. Call, call, write me and, and, and tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. So uh, let, let, me, let me ask this question. We touched on this for just a second. It's a final question here. Um, Anglophilia, uh, will we ever break ourselves of it? You know, I don't think, uh, do we really want to? I was talking to um, a very dear friend in England, and she said, well, you know, with the marriage of Prince William and, and his bride, uh, Kate. The I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Americans love it much more than, so there's two story, quick stories. So Americans love it much more than they do. And I said, well, we get to enjoy all of the ceremony and glamour without paying the bills. So our taxpayers' money do, do not go to uh, upkeep of the royal family. But we do really, really love that aspect of British society. And we do so unabashedly. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about porcelain decor- de- decorative commemorative wear, and we can still buy those plates of Prince William's wedding um, here in America. Maybe we buy more than they do. They'll I, be I, valuable I, someday. You should go collect them. <laughs> They'll be collectibles. I guarantee it. <laughs> so I'm going to really stock like, up. <laughs> well, and the other quick thing is that I always say sitcoms are the uh, the cliff notes of American society. So uh-huh. when you want to know about stereotypes, you you watch a sitcom. Whenever they want to um, have a snooty character, and this is unfortunately for us, it's a professor who has a faux British accent. Yeah. And so for Americans, it doesn't. If you know anything about British society, they're very very clued into different. Uh, class uh, accent. So your accent reveals your class or your education. Mm-hmm. For us, anything that sounds vaguely European is always upper class, even if it's a working class accent. True enough. Um, so it's it's a really funny thing that we still think of England, which is very diverse, as being just all about upper class tea parties and knowing the Queen. And I, I think that's a really telling, uh, telling, re- enduring legacy of the things that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That's why I give all my um, lectures with a English accent. I walk in there. <laughs> Students really eat that stuff up. <laughs> I think I'm smarter than I am. Anyway, uh, th- thank you very much for being with us today. We've, we've run out of time, but I want to ask our traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, uh, well, I'm here at the Huntington Library for the year. I have the luxury of working on my second book called Pacific Overtures. Um, and what I'm doing there is I'm looking – it follows up on that China chapter – and I'm thinking about America's um, first uh, exploration into the Pacific world. And I t- start with Captain Cook's final, ju- uh, final voyage in 1776. There's an American colonial on, on board. Mm-hmm. And when the ship leaves, 
uh, Ameri- the American Declaration of Independence is written, and this American becomes now a re- rebelling freeman mm. or citizen, future citizen, rather than a British subject. And then the book ends with Commodore Perry's entry into Japan in the name of this neo-imperialist country. So I think what's interesting is you could really mark the uh, development of the American nation in between these two voyages by looking at different commodities. So every chapter is going to look at a different Pacific commodity, Mm -hmm. starting with ginseng and sandalwood going to furs from the Pacific Northwest. And I talk about cattle um, and I talk about California history in that chapter. And I end with uh, discussion on whaling. So America's development and beginnings really start with this exploration of the Pacific. And they said, if the British have the Atlantic world, the Pacific will become our Atlantic. Mm-hmm. A very confusing way to say yeah, of that this really is how America grows, is they start to look west into the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Well, I envy you because you've got the beginning and the ending, so the rest should be pretty easy, right? You just fill in the blanks. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's never so. easy. I, yeah, <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, Carrie Ann, I want to thank you for uh, being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Carrie Ann Yakota about her book, Unbecoming British, How Revolutionary America Became a Post-Colonial Nation. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.